0: You're listening to the Business of Environment podcast with Mark Roman. Welcome everyone to the Business of Environment podcast, where we explore insights on the intersection of business, the environment and regulation. I'm your host, Mark Roman. Today's podcast is is going to provide a very informative insight into the environmental field because our special guest today offers a, uh, a really unique perspective into these challenging environmental issues. Joining us today is Mr. David Myro. Dave's a member of the law firm Chiesa, Shahinian, and Gio Tomasi, and I apologize if I butchered that name, <laughs> and, <laughs> and works within the firm's environmental group. Now, I think you'll find Dave's background pretty unique. You see, Dave graduated uh, from Dickinson College and with a degree in biology. He then earned a master's degree in environmental science from NGIT and ultimately a law degree from Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey. After uh, graduating from college, Dave started his career as an environmental consultant with Dan Reviv Associates, where he stayed for about seven years before leaving and attending Rutgers Law School. Now, since entering pra- the practice of law in 1999, Dave's focused exclusively in the area of environmental law, including Brownfields redevelopment, site remediation, and regulatory compliance. Now, you'll notice that I, I, I didn't introduce Dave as an attorney, although he is a very good attorney. In my opinion, he offers his clients so much more than just that. Because of Dave's unique background, his, his education has a technical and, and legal basis. He started his professional career as an environmental consultant, and then he, he switched to practicing environmental law. And because of this, he's, he's able to combine his technical and legal expertise for the benefit of his clients. Now, in an acronym-heavy, highly technical area, Dave likes to say that he's able to break things down into digestible chunks for his clients and is better able to communicate with consultants and engineers based on his prior experience. Now, I have worked with many attorneys over the years, and I have always welcomed and enjoyed working with Dave because he brings knowledge and experience to the table from both sides of the coin, if you will. And in my 30-plus years in the environmental field, Dave's the only attorney that I've worked with that has this unique and extremely beneficial background. Welcome, Dave, to the Business of Environment podcast.
1: Oh, Thank you, Mark, and thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion.
0: Fantastic, D- Dave. Beyond the brief bio, can can you let everyone know a little bit more about your background and and really what led you down the path to environmental consulting and, and then practicing law in the environmental arena?
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. I I, I will show my age with this uh, <laughs> with this uh, answer. Uh, when I was in college, as you had mentioned, I was a, a biology major, and uh, this was pre. You know, really pre internet, um, pre email. Uh, and uh, I was on the phone one night with my dad, who basically said, You know, listen, I know you're not going to uh, med school. You got this biology degree. What are you going to do with it? And, you know, I gave him some answer that he saw right through, and he just cut me off. And he just said, Listen, you got to start thinking about this. So uh, next day, I called up my uh, mom and literally said to her, Ma, can you mail me the, the yellow pages? And which she did. I opened up the yellow pages to environmental and saw that Dan Revive Associates was in Milburn. And I just lived the town over in Maplewood. And I said to myself, geez, I could bike there. So I called up Dan Revive, who was a uh, tremendous influence, a wonderful person, and much, uh, much like a father figure in a lot of ways. And he said, uh, he sounded just like Henry Kissinger. And he said, why don't you come on in? We'll talk. So I went in and he offered me a summer job there and I worked in the stock room and he got me out uh, into the field uh, when I could and it rolled over into a uh, full-time position. So that's how I started uh, environmental consulting and uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from uh, wonderful people that are you know, really still around and I uh, still communicate with on a, uh, on a regular basis.
0: Uh, that's a, that's a great story. Uh, yeah, I, I have some previous experience with, with Dan also, and, and he was, he helped to lay down the foundation for a lot of the environmental regulations in New Jersey. And, uh, I remember he was involved early on with a lot of the, the training seminars, uh, yeah. at Rutgers and stuff. Yeah. So I, I sat through a few of
1: them with him. Yeah. He, he really, uh, he really was unique. I was uh, very fortunate to uh, to hook up with him, in that uh, his office was <laughs> just next door. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so what made you decide to leave consulting and and go to the dark side, if you will, environmental <laughs> law?
1: <laughs> well, you know, as I was working there, um, Dan himself was a huge proponent of uh, of education, just in general, and and it became pretty clear to me that if I was really going to Uh, progress in that field, I would need, you know, advanced degrees. And uh, I wasn't sure about law school. It was, there was always some passing interest. And quite honestly, it was really working with lawyers every day, uh, virtually as an environmental consultant, that really spurred the interest for me. You know, I was asking myself, why were they asking me to do certain things, asking me not to do certain things. And uh, during the course of that, I started the master's program at NJIT. And by the time I was about to finish that up, I really decided that I wanted to shift gears and uh, and see things from that dark side, <laughs> as you described, <laughs> and decided, you know, when I, when I entered law school, I really uh, entered it with an open mind, you know, that if some other area of law really grabbed me, that I wouldn't... You know, preclude myself from considering that. But really, when it was all said and done, um, you know, the issues continued to be and and still are, you know, very very interesting to me. Uh, and it was something that I just wanted to continue and basically marry the two disciplines uh, together. And it's been a uh, and it's been a happy marriage. I think it's it's been nice to be able to bring those two things together and work with you know, both clients, as well as consultants and engineers, um, and feel comfortable uh, in both areas.
0: What do you think was the biggest challenge in your successful conversion from mindset of a consultant to the mindset of an attorney?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it's a great question. I I think it was, you know, it is just the fact that you are considering, uh, you have a lot more issues to consider from a, from a legal liability responsibility perspective um, and also, you know, client, uh, client goals um, and what they're trying to achieve and making sure that it is going to be adequately protective um, and allow them to do what they want to do. And on a more, you know, kind of nuts and bolts perspective or from that, pers- from a different perspective, it was also the writing style. And, you know, uh, the, the legalese and, and the advocacy that you're often, you know, writing with, whereas from a consultant perspective, that was a learning experience when I first entered from college where it's a very technical um, way to write, to convey, you know, the information in a very specific way that's easily understandable. And on the lawyer side, you, you want to do that, but it's from more of an advocacy Uh, position oftentimes
0: yeah it's that's a great point that i never even thought of it's it's i I have such a hard time what what i uh call legalese and and i i i I, my mind tends to muddy up when i start reading that stuff and (laughs) i can't imagine yeah, i cannot imagine what what it would be like trying to write that. But uh, you, you've done a, a great job at, at uh, changing that <laughs> you get, around. You
1: get just like anything, you know, you do it enough <laughs> time to just get used to it. <laughs> Can you tell
0: us a little bit more about your firm and about your specific practice?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, as you sort of indicated, Chiesa Shahinian and John Tomasi is a bit of a mouthful. So we're, <laughs> we're actually rebranding um, and Talk about you know just more acronyms, but we're reducing it just down to CSG. So it's Thank CSG God. law. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think I don't think there's going to be any pushback on that one. Um, but it's a, it's you know it is a it is a large uh, you know and growing firm. In uh, we're based in West Orange, New Jersey. It's a full service firm. We just acquired you know one of the areas that we didn't have. Uh, we just acquired a family law practice, for example. Where I think we're up to. I think of 170 or 180 attorneys, so uh, there really isn't anything, virtually anything that we don't do. We don't have criminal law; that's probably one of the few things. But we do have white collar, you know, uh, defense. But w- one of the most attractive things that you know brought me here was the strength of the environmental practice itself. Uh, here, it is a complete standalone practice. In, in, and what I mean by that is that we work closely with other practice groups, but we have enough of our own work to do our own thing. And it's chaired by Dennis Toft, who's a, uh, a terrific attorney. And he's been here for, I mean, pushing, I think, f- close to 40 years, 37, 38 years. And our land use and real estate practice is tremendous. And uh, what I really enjoy is the collaborative aspect of uh the practice of law I always have you know it's very difficult to be a solo i my I tip my hat to those guys that that uh that do it um because you know there's so many you know proverbial ways to skin a cat and it's great to be able to you know literally walk across the uh hall and just bounce something off of one of my colleagues. To say, you know, what do you think about this? And it's, and it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a benefit to my clients to have this, you know, this group that I can pull from. So, you know, when you're retaining me, you're not just retaining me; you're retaining the uh, the entire practice group. And with the land use folks, we work intimately close with them on the transactions, uh, the land use issues, and uh, and every other including and the finance group as well uh so i i love being able to offer that to uh to clients to developers that you know it's an overused cliche one-stop shop but you know we really do have a tremendous uh breadth and depth uh here that again in order to the benefit of uh, of our clients
0: yeah that that's great to to have that that uh the multifaceted uh, um, capability for your clients. Uh, yeah, it 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 helps, especially in property transactions where, like you said, so many different practices come into play. It helps streamline the whole process and speeds everybody everything up, and and also in the long run costs less for a client uh, through that right. whole setup. The one thing that that you had mentioned that you're you you actively practice in is is brownfield's redevelopment. And and that's been a, a, a hot topic for many years. And and many of our listeners are are property developers and property managers. And and I know some of them tend to shy away from these types of properties that have a history, if you will. And and it's a shame that they overlook these properties because many of them are located in areas Really ideal for successful and profitable redevelopment. Yeah, great. And, and 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 I often find um, brownfields redevelopment is is often misunderstood, and and as a result, I, I have a, a multi-part question for you. Sure. Uh, can you help our listeners understand what's considered to be a brownfields property? How is a purchaser of a brownfields property legally protected from that you know, property's history, mm-hmm. and and are there any ins- incentives that exist for someone to purchase a brownfield's property?
1: Sure. Uh, let's let's take them one at a time. There for sure. Um, excuse me. The uh, well, the definition of a brownfield is really any underutilized piece of property, and it's a very generic, broad definition. Reality is that um, most brownfield, the re- brownfields, the reason why they are underutilized is because they have certain you know, impairments and oftentimes those impairments are environmentally related. Contamination, really the unknown conditions associated with them. So that is why they're sitting. It's kind of like you know, that old you know, small industrial complex in, in a town that has you know, remained vacant for as long as everybody can remember. Uh, that type of thing, or you know, the vacant uh, service station that uh, shut down and never opened back up. So those those are the types of uh, you know brownfields that that we're talking about, and you know they range much much further and wider. Those are just a, a couple of examples. They can be you know postage stamps to hundreds of acres. As far as the various programs out there, there are you can work with. Uh, municipalities, for example, there's a uh, the HDSRF Fund, more acronyms, Hazardous Discharge Site Remediation Fund. Um, it allows public entities to conduct um, pre- preliminary assessments and site investigations on pieces of property to basically tee them up for developers. So, you know, the developer can approach a, uh, a, a municipality, you know, saying, if they've targeted a piece of property uh, to inquire about it, alternatively, you know, municipalities on their own can look at different properties, apply for these grants uh, to to conduct that type of work. There's also other types of incentive programs that on a a state and federal level, but, you know, oftentimes on a developer basis, when they're taking these types of larger projects on, you know, they can uh, work with, Um, local entities uh, to obtain for example what's known as a pilot a payment in lieu of taxes so that they know exactly what their you know taxes are going to be and um, for a certain amount of time or or reduce them there's a number of different ways it really is project dependent site dependent location dependent Um, and it's one of the reasons why for brownfield redevelopment in particular uh i think it's imperative that the developer put together the right team and the right team being from counsel legal as well as consulting and uh and also you know whatever construction engineering is going to be required because you know what you there there's many different ways to save money and time through the process uh, and at the end of the day what you don't want to do is you don't want to you know start your construction for example and only to then find out that you have to go back tear it up and dig something out or or address something that that wasn't considered at the beginning uh and again it's a very collaborative uh process but it's all designed to get that property productive and uh and back on the tax roll so to speak and uh for me it's uh it's really Uh, you know, feel good work, you know, that you can point to something tangible and say, you know, I had a, I had a part in that, that used to be something that nobody, you know, liked and was a big problem. And now, now look, you know, it's employing people, it's productive, it looks great, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's usable by the, by the community. And as far as um, protections, you know, there, there are certain protections that are, that are conveyed uh, to uh, Brownfield Redevelopers. to the brownfield Contaminated site act there are certain agreements really contractual shifts of, of responsibility and liability again uh, between the the purchaser the developer and the entity it's uh, it's acquiring the property from really that's where it comes into play and the fact that you really do need you know competent counsel to walk you through that process because there are several layers uh, that you want to make sure that you are Um, considering with respect to um, liability protection responsibility protection and you know at the end of the day some there's also various insurance products that are available um, to entities to sometimes bridge gaps that you know where two parties are having a difficult time allocating responsibility uh, and you know or concerns about for example third-party complaints uh, that might uh, arise in the future uh, for, you know, the parties involved. So there are mechanisms and instruments out there. Um, again, the availability of them, whether or not they make sense, um, economically, um, is largely dependent on the scope of the project.
0: Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. It, sure. yeah, and it's, it's important for our property developers and managers that are listening out there that, these these are, are are sites out there that that can can earn you a, a good inve- return on your investment and and um, there as Dave you know eloquently stated there's lots of programs and protections for you but the key is again to have the right people working with you and 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 that's why I can't stress enough to our listeners the importance of retaining a very knowledgeable environmental attorney. Both for the issues at hand and and also within the the area where you're located, and, you know that that attorney needs to have experience mm-hmm. uh, and knowledge of of local atmosphere. You know, federal, state, and local atmosphere in in terms of what's going on and regulations. And and with that said, many of our listeners just may not know where you know what to look for in an environmental attorney. So Dave. If you found yourself in a position where you needed to retain another environmental attorney, what would you look for to help you make that decision on who to choose?
1: Hmm. You know, I think I'd want someone that really does, you know, focus on, on this practice, just like anything, uh, as time has progressed across the board, all these areas have become more and more specialized. I think I, you know, mentioned the general practitioner, Someone nowadays that you, it, bottom line is I don't think you can dabble in this. I think you need to have find somebody that focuses on it um, virtually exclusively and uh, understands the process. Um, and from just a client perspective, really understands is a good listener, frankly, and understands the the goals um, of the client and can counsel that client on how to achieve those goals. And is really looking to Simplify the process as opposed to complicate it. And, you know, a lot of times I see and get involved in projects that have been, you know, lingering or languishing or not getting done. And oftentimes it's because, you know, the, the process has become overcomplicated. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're in large part our job is to be devil's advocate um, for what might happen, but there are limits. And uh, you know the likelihood that I'm going to get struck by lightning. Sure, could it happen? But what's the likelihood that that that, that that is actually going to happen? And trying to quantify risk, um, as I describe to uh, clients, you can't eliminate risk, but you can mitigate risk. And trying to establish the risk tolerance is also very very important, and and particularly in the brownfields context um, where there are some uh projects i have some clients that uh yeah there's one guy the way that he describes it is uh the hairier the better you know the more <laughs> you know i'll 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 consider a super fun site and other clients are not interested in something that quote unquote hairy so it's um it it, it that that really is it in my opinion retaining somebody that you feel comfortable is going to listen understand and has that requisite experience to to pull it all together
0: you know we're we're talking a little bit about the internet you know back when we were both in school the internet (laughs) didn't exist and uh (laughs) internet i mean i I can't imagine i cannot imagine growing up with the internet it's it's just uh the wealth of information at hand is is fantastic but it's also very (laughs) dangerous (laughs) because like you said it makes a lot of these folks who are sole practitioners, experts in, and everything, you, you know, out there. So if you call regarding a specific environmental issue, they Google that issue, and then they talk to you following what Google's telling them. Right. So, so that's, that's, that's why it's important to, to really do your homework on Arn, this. And then quite frankly, to our listeners, a lot of your homework's already done just give dave a call but
1: (laughs) i appreciate that
0: (laughs) one one of the biggest complaints i hear relative to environmental matters is is really staying in tune with these environmental regulations they're always changing on us and what do you believe makes some successful in navigating these uh these regulations while others struggle with it
1: yeah um you know i think it is it is just that it is it is staying on top of it and um and having you know a true interest in it and understanding the progression of uh, of some of these regulatory uh changes and as far as you know the the navigating the you know these these various issues the, where where people I find uh, that struggle. I mean, I think that depending upon who, you know what category of individual we're we're talking about, you know, from a from a the regulated regulated community standpoint, you know, I think that the ones that that struggle tend to you know kick the can down the road. Um, they know that they've got a problem, or they might have a problem, or they might be, you know, they're not sure whether or not they're in compliance. And um, you know, the ones that Continuously sort of push that off, push that off, push that off, as opposed to addressing it early on uh, when they're, you know, thinking they might have a problem, or just getting, you know, retaining, you know, a competent consultant, you know, like an Envision to come in and give them an assessment. Um, again, there's ways to, you know, protect that information and make sure that it's not going to trigger, for example, further uh, compliance uh, requirements you know, until unless and until, you know, uh, a, a regulated entity is ready. So it, it's 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 knowledge. Uh and it's staying on staying on top of it. It's just kind of, you know, in some cases maintenance on your car. You know, you let you let it go, you let it go, you let it go and that, you know, two hundred dollar fix turns into a two thousand dollar fix. Uh that 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 is uh that's that could be a problem. But, you know, that being said, in the environmental context the way that the statutes are written, um, you know, what, you know, can hurt you, you know, and what you don't know necessarily, if you don't have knowledge of it, that's not going to trigger any, um, any further compliance obligations. So again, it's a, it's a conversation and it's understanding the goals, um, of the client and what they're really look, what they're concerned about and ultimately what they're looking to do.
0: We, we always advise our clients, listen, just don't listen to us. Uh, you need to get legal counsel on this stuff because uh, you know as, as you just said it's it's sometimes it's you know it, 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 it's it's what you you don't know that can save you or what you don't know can hurt you so you, you really yeah. need to, to 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 get legal counsel on it, especially whenever you're dealing with regulations and permitting and compliance. Mm-hmm. Don't just rely on a consultant, make sure you have legal counsel input there also.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh,
0: what's your your uh, number one piece of advice for businesses dealing with potential environmental challenges.
1: Well, I I think it kind of dovetails with exactly what you were uh, you were saying and and I was saying, which is there is a you know everyone has their role. I you know counsel you know my I think it's a it's a bad idea for businesses to rely on their consultants as lawyers. Um, they're not lawyers. They don't want to be lawyers. And uh, on the same, you know, on the other side of the table, relying on your lawyer to be the consultant. I mean, certainly I bring a, you know, a unique background, but I don't pretend to be a consultant and I'm not a consultant. I'm a lawyer that has, you know, that was a consultant and brings that, uh, brings that experience to the table. And I think is a better able to be a liaison oftentimes between the consultant and the client. But you know my number one piece of advice is you know again putting together the right team or having the right people that you know you can reach out to um i don't need to be inserted into the process um unless and until there's a need you know i don't want to you know just be there as the you know third wheel um but when the situation arises uh, where it goes beyond, you know, regulatory just straight regulatory compliance that, you know, someone like yourself does every day of the week, and you know, kicks over to a potential liability, fines, violations that puts that entity at risk. You know, that's that's when that's when you really need to have somebody to reach out to. You know, I've, I've had several conversations uh, over the years where you know at the end of the conversation i just say honestly it doesn't sound like you need me right now i think it sounds like your consultant is doing a a great job if this happens then um reach out you know if there's a need in the future that kind of looks like that uh this or that then you've got my number um but you know i everybody sort of has a role to play and um and that is uh that's that was is Having that understanding is really the message I'm trying to convey. Yeah,
0: and, and that's precisely why your your background is is so unique and and uh, beneficial to a client because because you've you've experienced both sides of that coin, if you will, that gray area of when does consulting become legal or when does legal become consulting. It's it's more defined. You you're, you're able to see that more clearly than a consultant that doesn't have legal background or a legal person that doesn't have consulting background. So right. that's that's extremely beneficial to clients. what do you see as uh as the prominent environmental challenge that's that's facing us this coming year?
1: Uh well uh hmm. <laughs> Yeah. You know, (laughs) what was that? How about just one of them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, with, uh, in New Jersey specifically, you know, I mean the current administration seems to be pretty aggressive uh, and wanting to, you know, pick up, uh, we're seeing an uptick in enforcement actions. Um, that's for sure. Uh, there's been some older cases or older open cases that have sort of floated to the top of the pile. And, uh, Various parties are getting letters from the department notifying them that, uh, you know, something that happened literally 20 years ago is now, uh, you know, going to be a problem today. So on the enforcement level, I I, I kind of we've seen an uptick um, on a, you know, regulatory level. Again, it's one of the aspects about this area of law that makes it, you know, always interesting, because as technology and science advances, the regular the regulations also change and advance and evolve you know so one of the big contaminants now that is seems to be at the uh at the forefront of of a lot of concerns are these pfos and pfoa uh compounds that are you know have have uh garnished the uh, the term the forever chemicals um because they essentially you know never break down, or what they break down into are just more or different PFAS and PFOAs. You know, we're now, I remember when you're sampling stuff for, you know, in the parts per million range, and then it's parts per billion range, and now we're down to parts per trillion range, and, uh, you know, New Jersey has established um, some um, groundwater uh, regulatory requirements. Um, or maximum contaminant levels for PFOS and PFOA is at you know 14 and 13 parts per trillion, and so everyone's really trying to wrap their arms around how that's going to be handled and the liabilities and risks associated with them from virtually every every vantage point um, because they're so persistent once they're in the environment. I don't think really anyone knows how to remediate them and remove them and the liabilities associated with it really uh remain to be seen. You know, the federal government uh, really New Jersey and California are always at the forefront of environmental regulation. New Jersey has pushed the EPA to uh more highly regulate these compounds. Um the EPA has been reluctant to do so. New Jersey is taking the lead what i find often
0: is is technology often has a lot of catching up to do with these regulations mm-hmm. uh, you know can we even test for down to parts per trillion levels you know yeah. so it's it's yeah there, there may be this requirement to meet that but try to find a laboratory that can test down to certain levels it's it's difficult so it's uh there is a you know, the technology and regulation need to, to marry up more often than they, than. than yeah. Yeah.
1: Without a doubt. And so much is, um, you know, is, is oftentimes, uh, financially driven. Um, yeah. there are a lot of remedial technologies out there. I don't think, you know, for PFAS or PFO, I don't think they've really caught up. They're still trying to figure that one out, but for mm-hmm. other types of persistent compounds and, uh, you know, oftentimes it wasn't that the technology to address them didn't exist, but the, it was much cheaper to, you know, just dig it out of the ground and drive it across the country and dump it somewhere else as opposed yep. to, you know, treating it on site until, you know, the economics made sense. And, and that's where, you know, you really see uh, the real change.
0: Yeah. In, in many of, if not all of our environmental projects, consultants and attorneys need to work together uh, for the same client. And uh, you alluded to this before, It can be quite challenging and, and often you know, sometimes it could get costly for our clients, and and Dave, for for my fellow consultants listening today, and and more importantly for myself, what should consultants do to better work with and communicate with environmental attorneys?
1: Mm, uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I I think it I think it is uh just you know to do that, and I mean and and uh, communicate. Mm. I think that. Uh, there oftentimes is a lack of communication, you know, between the two. Uh, And also, you know, I think it kind of, we've touched upon it in a lot of the different, you know, uh, throughout this discussion, which is, um, I don't want, it's a, we're on the same team. At the end of the day, we're on the same team. We're both trying to do What's best and in the best interest of the client. The consultant is not my enemy. I'm not the enemy of the consultant. And, you know, I think having that understanding can break down, you know, some of the barriers and the walls to, you know, communicating effectively and honestly with each other. And, you know, we're just, if I'm asking a question, of a consultant and I'm, I'm very open about this that when I'm reviewing for example a scope of work or something you know in my estimation and uh, you know in my experiences you know the good consultants see this you know such as yourself like if I'm asking you mark can you explain to me why you need these samples or why we need um, four wells instead of two wells you are completely comfortable and confident in explaining that to me and giving me the reasons and the rationale behind it Um, because oftentimes the client is you know the role that I play you know whether I want to or not can be the client saying to me you know they're telling me I need to do this do I really need to do this do I really need all of this and if I can then explain to them, and this is kind of what I feel like I can bring to the table in those digestible bits, so to speak, explain to them here, you know, yes, you do have to do this. And here's why it makes the whole process, you know, much, much easier and much smoother. And the relationship between, you know, everyone more helpful, you know, at, again, at the end of the day, we're all trying to help each other. And it's the same thing if I'm reviewing you know, a report that, you know, is being put together, you know, I can massage some of the language to make it flow a little bit better, or, you know, I'm not trying to change a result, uh, but there are, you know, various ways to explain the same thing um, to convey a certain message. So it's really that, it really is that open communication and not being um, threatened. Now, that being said, you know, I mean, that that's where the differences between some attorneys comes in. You know, some attorneys are, you know, very aggressive and take that want to, you know, control the process in a much greater at a much greater level. And, uh, you know, my experience is that that can, you know, that can lead to, you know, problems or delaying the process as opposed to, you know, simplifying it, so to speak.
0: And and increase costs in the long run for the for the this- you know, same client. Yeah. That yeah. yeah. I think for, so. Yeah.
1: Because, the, you know, like I had said before, you know, I, I don't, the, the client has a consultant, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you, you've, they've, they've retained, you know, someone, uh, to do that. And, uh, I don't, I'm not looking to be the consultant. I, I everyone just kind of has an under, whenever everyone has an understanding of, the role that they're playing, and you know that this is a team effort, and we're here to just essentially support each other um, in achieving, you know, that goal. Getting, you know, a site into full compliance, or you know, acquiring all the permits for, you know, to allow a development to proceed, uh, and ultimately, you know, being able to, you know, be at a ribbon cutting when that development is completed. Uh, that's that's the goal. You know, I mean, as, as I like to say, you know, I'm here to make make deals, not kill deals.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's refreshing to hear, uh, because sometimes, you, you, you know, working, you, 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 you get a feeling with with some uh, members of the party you're working with that that's not the case. And it's it's just, uh, you know, one aggravating step after another. But mm-hmm. that, that's that's true. And, and that's important to kind of convey at the the onset of a project when there's a team involved is is listen we need to work together to get this thing done yeah Um, you know and 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 a a successful conclusion for our our client whatever it may be and uh and that's important to convey
1: yeah yeah absolutely and also just you know being bringing a dose of um of uh you know being realistic uh you know sometimes there are unfortunately you know because of the way the regula- regulations the regulatory requirements are you know put together things take time and you know that's the other thing that you know when you sort of kick the environmental aspect down the road especially in the context of development or redevelopment and it doesn't even have to be you know a brownfield redevelopment per se You know, it can be any you know purchase of of uh, of property. I'll I'll just set aside residential, not not including residential, but any other type of commercial industrial property. You need to take you know you need to do the appropriate due diligence in order to you know protect that buyer. And um, there's certain ways to do that that are you know must be complied with, um, or else that buyer. Will be left holding the bag if something is found at a later date, Um, but and nobody wants to, you know, have that kind of surprise put on them. So, not addressing the environmental or having it be part of, you know, the overall um, due diligence process um, is uh, is off is a big mistake, is uh, and and you don't want to, you know, at the closing, so to speak find out about something that you could have known um, much earlier in the process and addressed in the, you know, contractual documents uh, to allocate whatever responsibility, liability um, risk within between those parties.
0: And, and, And what's important for our listeners out there who find themselves in the role of a client is is something that I, I, I want I want to uh, highlight that you said earlier, which is so valuable. Is you cannot eliminate risk, you can mitigate risk, yeah. and what that client needs to have an understanding for, and it it can only come from them. Is what level of risk are you willing to accept, and and that helps the overall process go a lot smoother. And you need to you need to inform your project team your your legal counsel your consultants of that level of risk that you're willing to
1: accept yeah and, without question
0: yeah and I, and I thought that was valuable information and and that you gave regarding the you know elimination versus mitigation of risk
1: right dave can
0: you share with our audience an interest or hobby that you enjoy doing with your free time
1: no. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh sure, sure. I, I, Besides I love... reading
0: reading regulations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well that's it. <laughs> it's all I do. No, um I'm a I'm a passionate um I love to fish and uh in in particular I love surf fishing. So, um I will you know, I, I was just, in fact, having this discussion this morning. Um, that you know, when someone says they love to fish, what does that really mean? You know, for some people, it means, you know, putting out a beach chair on on the beach, you know, throwing, um, you know, a chunk of bait into the water, putting it in the rod holder, and sitting down and cracking open a beer. And you know what? That's great. <laughs> that's that's that that's that's fine. The, but my style of fishing is more uh, a little bit more in depth, where um, uh, oftentimes I'm targeting striped bass, uh, but I'm going after pretty much anything that's running. But understanding, you know, looking at tide charts, wind charts, uh, water temperature charts, and uh, figuring figuring out, you know, the best places to be and when to be them. And if that means, you know, standing on a uh, st- standing on a jetty at two o'clock in the morning, well, then you know that's where you'll find me. <laughs> 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 well, Dave, and, and, tr- and trust me when I tell you, if, if I if I based how often I fish uh, on how many fish I catch, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be fishing all that uh, as often as I do. <laughs> but for me, it's really about the experience.
0: I think that's just the definition of being a true fisherman: is, is <laughs> it so. doesn't matter what you catch. <laughs> that's right. That's You're just right. doing it. You're just fishing. <laughs> hey, Without Dave. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us today if if people want to get in touch with you how would they do that
1: uh sure yeah my uh easily uh email is great um it's the uh first letter of my first name my last name and c s g law so it's d myro m a i r o it's like cairo with an m uh so it's d Miro at c s g dot com and my uh, direct dial is nine seven three five three zero two zero nine one and I would encourage anybody to just, you know, and, and, and again, this is an open, um, open invite, so to speak. You know, if, if you just have a question um, about something, uh, I'm happy to have that conversation, um, you know, gratis, just to see if there is, you know, something, some legal uh, representation that you do need um, either now or in the future. Uh, but, you know, if it's something that you just want to bounce off of me, I'm happy to talk to you.
0: Yeah, just don't try to get a hold of Dave at two a.m. because he'll be that's right. Out on, he'll be out on a jetty somewhere along the Jersey Shore. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Dave, and and well, thank yep. you, thank you everyone for listening to today's show. And uh, until we share some time together
1: again, stay safe and be well. Yeah, Mark, thanks for having me. Really uh, enjoyed it. The Business of Environment podcast is sponsored by Envision Environmental. Do you have environmental gorillas hiding in plain sight at your facility? Chances are you do, and you don't even know it. Discover how to assess your environmental, health, and safety risks, and protect yourself from fines and liabilities before there's trouble. Download a free copy of our book, Overlooked, Hunting the Invisible Environmental Gorilla, at envisionenvironmental.com freebook free book.